name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by his word through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. As Peter boldly confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's inerrant word. Nothing more, nothing less. All for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ for you. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We are at the heart of the Reformation justification through faith in Christ alone. And we're looking at both articles, articles three and four. I recently had a conversation with a young man considering ministry. He was enamored by other church bodies, non-Lutheran church bodies, because of their order, structure, and their traditions. Everything seemed to be seen so neat and clean and put together. And to be honest, I'm, I can be enamored as well in this. As we look at other churches, we often will look at their ideals, the order, the, the traditions, and all that they're doing, and we will compare it to our Lutheran reality. Now, this happens, but the heart of the conversation is not that. The heart of the conversation came down to this. If you lose Article 4, meaning if the traditions and everything else becomes everything, you lose everything. No order, tradition, perfect hymnody, or perfect building, or perfect structure, or perfect workers will ever be able to do anything being able to say that pe without being able to say, people are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into the favor and their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Those are the words that we cling to even when things are not ideal. Which is why we look at this article. We'll have five studies on justification alone in the apology. So buckle up, I suppose you would say. Open up your book of Concord and open up your Bible and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the apology, send us an email. KFUO at KFUO.org. KFUO at KFUO.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back Pastor Greg Truey of Trinity Lutheran Church in Cole Camp, Missouri. Pastor Truey, welcome back to Concord Matters. It's good to be with you. Yeah, Pastor, a few weeks ago we had you on in November, and it was really kind of fun because you emphasized how church authority, which you are listeners, I would encourage you to listen to that. It was an outstanding um, uh, recording or study for us as we look at what, you know, what by what authority we do all this. What's the main thing? And in there, it was really fun. You mentioned how uh, this really comes back to justification, which I thought was a shameless plug for today, um, that you're like, hey, be ready for the next time I'm on. So... So hopefully you're ready. I mean, we've been preparing here for a few weeks. That's right. I'm ready to go, man. <laughs> ready to go. Plus, you know, it's a busy time. Tomorrow is actually Christmas Eve. So we'll, we will get to it and look forward to joining in this confession. So we are in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord uh, from Concordia Publishing House on page 82 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. We are starting on Article 3, which is Christ, and, and this is a very short one, not to demean, obviously, Jesus, or to, uh, not demean, wrong word, uh, to, to kind of pass over Jesus here, but also as something that the Reformers agreed with one another. So let's just start with that. Page 82, we'll begin with the note, and then I also will read the Confession article, Article 3. It was very important for the Lutherans to affirm the historic biblical confession of the Church, Christ is fully God and fully man. In this confession concerning Christ's Supper, 
1528, Luther wrote, Here you must take your stand and say that whatever Christ is according to his divinity, he is there as a natural divine person, and he is also naturally and personally there, as his conception in his mother's womb proves conclusively. For if he was the Son of God, he had to be in his mother's womb naturally and personally and became man. He is not two separate persons, but a single person. Wherever this person is, it is a single indivisible, indiv indivisible person. And if you say, here is God, then you must also say, Christ the man is present too. The article of justification is rooted in this article of Christ and see other examples. And here is a confession. The adversaries approve Article 3, in which we confess that there are two natures in Christ. The human nature was assumed by the word into the unity of his person, John 1, 14. Christ suffered and died to reconcile the Father to us and was raised again to reign to justify and to sanctify believers according to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Pastor, as we look at this today, we are reminded the very simple, but yet, you know, maybe a little bit hard to understand, uh, understanding of the two natures of Christ. In what way do the Reformers and the uh, Roman Catholic Church at that time agree? Uh, well, thankfully, agree with one another on who this Christ is. Yeah. So they, they, they agree on two points, and they are that Jesus is both God and man, that he is uh, eternally divine, and that the humanity was assumed by the word into one whole person. So that you have two natures, but one being, one person, and it can't, he can't be sort of divided up or torn apart, right? So you can never say sort of like, well, it's just Jesus, you know, just the human part of Jesus is doing this thing. No, no, no. It's Jesus who is doing that, and Jesus is always fully God and fully man. And they agreed on that. The second thing that they agreed upon was what his work accomplished, that his suffering and death was done for, the recon for reconciliation to the Father, and that he was raised to reign, to justify, and to sanctify humanity, as they say is, is taught in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. That's what this article says. However, let me, let me just offer this thought. And I think this is also true for our Christological conversations with Reformed Christians, that is, uh, Calvinist Christians, right? I think, in fact, how you answer the next question that, and how we confess the doctrine of justification may actually reveal that they're Maybe, maybe they're, that we didn't quite agree on the work of Christ fully. And that if, if we would have said more in Article 3 of the Augsburg Confession, maybe, maybe Rome would have had some issues with what we believed about Christ and um, his atoning work of, of, of his death on the cross being fully sufficient, right? And this is then becomes a problem with Rome and also with the Reformed on the other side. And I would definitely encourage you to look at Augsburg Confession Article 3, because you're right. There is that reality of they might have gotten through 3, 
And then everything started going down when they got to four because it says um, that that Christ made satisfaction for our sins and counts as faith for righteousness in his sight in the original AC4. And if that would have been, like you said, kind of flushed out a little more in Article 3, you would have had, well, you would have had angry people an article earlier, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it is very important. I, I'll tell you this fun little quip um, story from seminary. One time we were in class and talking about two, two natures of Christ. And there was one particular student, not me, because I wasn't uh, quick enough on my feet to do this, uh, heard the professor say something that talked about um, both uh, God and man. So he said, oh, so professor, it's kind of like you took two boards and you and you nail them together that Jesus is, you know, both and they're kind of like, you know, half and half or whatever it might be. And it was really fun because this guy is always asking questions and making um, not jokes, but just kind of bring up sarcastic things. And he says that, which is a heresy, by the way, for all of you listening. Right. Um, and, and the professor said, ah, I have been Orthodox longer than you've been alive. <laughs> He wasn't fooled. Huh? He wasn't fooled he whatsoever. Wasn't fooled. And so it's yeah. good for us to not only, and I encourage you, our listeners, to go through, uh, you'll find these kind of resources in many different places. Um, but there are ways that you'll hear it and go, well, that kind of makes sense when it doesn't, because you stick to the very clear words that are confessed here beautifully in this apology. Like you said, assumed the word and unity of his person, but at the same time, fully. Um, but but human and God. And so to be able to say those words and then to stop instead of trying to make more analogies, it never ends well. Pastor, anything else you want to talk about with Jesus or the Christ and the two natures before we get to justification? Uh, we'll save it for justification. Sounds good to me. All right, page 82, we go right to Article 4. A reminder, once again, that we will be on this um, subject for, uh, well, quite a while, five five studies here and into the new year in 2024, because it is, one, it's very long, but two, it is so vital to the work of the church. Because, once again, I said, you can have everything perfect in the church, but if the preaching and teaching is not grounded in this, then it is nothing but a social club. So let us make sure we get this part right. Article 4, Justification, will begin with the note. Article 4 of the Apology is the most complex article in the entire Book of Concord because it deals with our salvation, that is, how God has forgiven our sins and has reconciled us to himself in Christ. It is also the most important. This article is the very heart of the Gospel and the most important teaching in Holy Scriptures. Therefore, the apology goes into great detail about the doctrine of justification. All scripture leads us to, from, and back to the truth of Christ's work of atonement. God applies Christ's work to individuals freely by grace through faith without works. This article in Christ, AC3, proclaims how Christ, how God atones for sins. The article on the church's ministry on the means of grace, AC5, confesses how God applies to individuals the merits won by Christ. What brings these two articles together is the article of justification, which describes how we are justified, that is, declared righteous by God. Pastor, uh, how do you want to start us off in this very important um, article and doctrine as Christians? Yeah, I guess what I want the reader to remember is that this article sort of serves as a bridge between 
the article on Christ and the article on the ministry which follows, right? So we have Christ and we have the ministry of Christ, but what is it all for? And it and it's for justifying faith. Well, okay, so let's make sure we understand what justifying faith is. And there were different views and people were not quite understanding it. And if and then what does that mean? For what we said about Jesus, or what does that mean for the ministry going forward? So how we answer this question about justification, uh, really, you know, it, it sort of determines a whole lot about how we handle other issues as well and other other doctrines. And so it, it's it's critically important. So, Pastor, let's start this way, since we have much to read, is mm-hmm. can you give us like the the summary version, and we could just, you could just read AC4, of course, but it, when someone says, and you're in confirmation class, um, what is justification? How would you give a, a, a tagline? Best, not the best way to do theology, but for our purpose, <laughs> kind of help us out is, and I'm going to ask all of our guests, five studies, how would you give a tagline or a short snippet of, this is what justification is in a simple way? Yeah. Justification huh, is... The free gift of God in Christ given to sinners for the sake of Christ, right? That their sins are forgiven before God on account of Christ's work, atoning work on the cross, right? So it's a justification of faith that we believe in God's declaration of our innocence, Um, Not a justification by me showing to God my big pile of works that I've done to earn his love and merit or satisfaction. So Mm. does that help? Is that simple enough? For you, our listeners, just uh, I look forward to the next uh, four studies after today because um, we're so blessed with our pastors and how they teach such things. And, you know, we have to we have to be able to teach this in a sermon. Um, sometimes among pastors and even among confirmation students or little Sunday school kids. And so it's fascinating to me how blessed we are with the different teaching and blessings that we have, especially here today with Pastor Truy. So let's dig into this. This is long, as I mentioned, but very important. So if you're a listeners, I would just encourage you to really dig in and be patient um, because this is vital not only to the salvation, your, our salvation, but also as we think about zeal for evangelism, this is the heart of it, the foundation of all that we do as a church. So we're on page 82, um, beginning in the number one. In articles 4, 5, 6, and 20, they condemn us for teaching that people obtain forgiveness of sins, not because of their own merits, but freely for Christ's sake through faith in Christ. They condemn us both for denying that people obtain forgiveness of sins, because of their own merits, and for affirming that through faith, people obtain forgiveness of sins and are justified through faith in Christ. But in this controversy, the chief topic of Christian doctrine is treated. When it is understood correctly, it illumines and amplifies Christ's honor, which is especially useful for the clear, correct understanding of the entire Holy Scriptures, and alone shows the way to the unspeakable treasure and right knowledge of Christ, and alone opens the door to the entire Bible. It brings necessary and most abundant consolation to devout consciences. Therefore, we ask His Imperial Majesty to hear us with patience in matters of such importance. 
But the adversaries do not understand what forgiveness of sins or faith or grace or righteousness is. Therefore, they sadly corrupt this topic, hide Christ's glory and benefits, and rob devout consciences of the consolation offered in Christ. In order that we may strengthen the position of our confession and also remove the charges that the adversaries advance against us, certain points are to be set forth in the beginning. Then the sources of both kinds of doctrine, that of the our adversaries, are our own, may be known. All scripture ought to be distributed into these two principal topics, law and the promises. For in some places scripture presents the law, and in other places the promises of Christ. In other words, in the Old Testament, Scripture promises that Christ will come and it offers for his sake the forgiveness of sins, justification, and life eternal. Or in the Gospel in the New Testament, Christ himself, since he has appeared, promises a forgiveness of sins, justification, and life eternal. Furthermore, in the discussion by the law, we mean the Ten Commandments, wherever they are read in the Scriptures. We say nothing at present about the ceremonies and judicial laws of Moses. Of these two parts of scripture, the adversaries choose the law, because in some ways human reason naturally understands the law. It has made the same judgment divinely written in the mind. But the law, they seek the forgiveness of sins and justification. The Ten Commandments also require outward civil works, which reason can and in some way produce. But they also require other things placed far above reason, truly to fear God, to love God, truly to call upon God, Truly to be convinced that God hears us and to expect God's aid in death and in all afflictions. Finally, the law requires obedience to God in death and in all afflictions so that we may not run from these commandments or refuse them when God lays them upon us. Here the scholastics have followed the philosophers. They teach only a righteousness of reason, that is, they teach civil works. Besides, they imagine reason can love God above all things without the Holy Spirit. For as long as the human mind is at ease, that does not feel God's wrath or judgment. It can imagine that it wants to love God, and it wants to do good for God's sake. In this way, they teach that people merit forgiveness of sins by doing what is in them, namely, when reason produces an act of love toward God, by grieving over sin, or when reason is active in doing what is good for God's sake. Because this notion naturally flatters people, He has brought forth and multiplied in the church many services, monastic vows, and abuses of the Mass. In the course of time, with this opinion, someone has come up with one act of worship and observances, and someone else, others. To nourish and increase confidence in such works, the scholastics have asserted that God must give grace to a person who does such works, not that he is forced to, but that God will not change what he ordered. Pastor, we have, I mean, and this is chock full of just great stuff. So it talks about reason, you know. Um, it talks about law and the promises and the and the, the um, Christ being the center of Scripture. Where do you want to start? Yeah, so this is, um, I, I think I want to start by huh, where the, the article is identifying the controversy, right? And how uh, the righteousness of reason, which is what the opponents, uh, those of who were holding to the teaching of, of Rome, 
we're, we're, we're putting forth actually, actually robs Christ of his glory and starves the Christian conscience of its comfort. And so this is why this all, all matters, right? Um, and so then, in paragraph 5, they begin to say, you know, this is all a matter of understanding uh, how the Scripture speaks in two ways. The Scripture speaks uh, with law and promises, law and gospel. And this is not sort of just the way the Old Testament spoke and now the New Testament speaks. No, no, no. All of Scripture speaks this way of law and promise, right? Two parts of Scripture. So that the Old Testament includes both demands of the Lord and also sweet promises and the forgiveness of sins. But that's also there in the New Testament from the very mouth of Christ himself. But what, where we go wrong and where the opponents were going wrong is when they exalt what the human will is capable of and what reason can accomplish so that when man can, by reason, figure out that it is good to be kind to his neighbor or do something else that would otherwise be seen as a good and, and loving thing, they think that that merits God's favor. And that's where they go wrong. And so they're setting this out to basically spend the rest of our section that we're going to study today showing where the opponents go wrong by teaching a righteousness of reason or a righteousness of civil works, or which is basically just a righteousness of their own ability, the righteousness of the law. It is very important for us, and this is what we speak about all the time as Lutherans is faithful law and gospel preaching. This goes back to law gospel uh, writings by our founder of the LCMS, CFW Walther, which I encourage our listeners to look at the reader's edition of Concordia Publishing House on uh, law and gospel. But I love how it's broken down because we can easily assume when we are talking about justification that we leave law out of it. There's no need for the law. We're talking about that Jesus has done all the work. Um, so why would we talk about the law? The law makes me feel bad. The law is something that uh, I don't think I need. Uh, it accuses me. Pastor, what would your response be and why it's important that they put this in here very early on in this confession? Yeah, because to, to deny the law is then to also deny the purpose for which Christ had to come. Right? He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, his own words, right? So, so that the, the law is, you know, needs to be understood and maybe defined as sort of the, the, will, of, the will of God, right? That, that there would be love and that his creation, humanity, would be loved. In my sermon this past Sunday, preaching on... Uh, Luke 14 and Jesus healing the man with dropsy on the Sabbath day, I started out with the assertion that the divine love of God never seeks its own interests, but is always seeking to serve another. And this was true in eternity, as the, as the Father loves the Son and the Son you know, loves the Father. But this is also why they create, why the Holy Trinity creates, 
so that humanity might become the object of his love. And now it's broken in the fall. And mankind is no longer able to carry that out, right? But this was all then to serve as his glory. And it isn't as if then, well, because it was broken, God no longer desires for mankind to be loved. No, he still desires it. And so he reestablishes it in his son. He, he gives his son to, to make things new, right? To bring a new creation and to renew sinful humanity so that we also might love. We love because he first loved us. And so the law still matters. It's still God's will. It does show us our sin, of course. It shows us where we fall short so that we might all the more glory in the work of Christ for us, which is how then we're justified. I want to just mention this point too, and that's very well said, because if, if there is no law, um, like Christ did not abolish a law. This is what he's very clear on. Um, he came to fulfill it, which doesn't take the law away. And it's very important here too in number eight, where it talks about what is the law, and he talks about the Ten Commandments. Because we, and this is something we spoke about last time we were on, Pastor Truy, um, mm -hmm. we can make up our own laws. And then often people will eventually just get in such despair, then they start, well, what is the real laws we're supposed to be following? I can remember um, speaking to my grandmother. She grew up in a, a very pious Norwegian Lutheran home, and they couldn't play face cards. I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to play, play, play uh, face cards, but she, I remember just thinking about as a child, like we couldn't play face cards. So we made up a new game with no face cards, you know, when we're playing, <laughs> playing the deck of cards. And what that leads to is people eventually are like, well, these rules, I'm just going to make up my own rules. And then you make up more rules and more rules. And the whole time, then the law gets watered down because you're not even pointing people back to Jesus because all you're trying to do is follow more laws. So I thought it was very well said, as you mentioned that today, is the law, we need the law because it's not gone, um, but to know of the sweetness of the gospel along with that law. Pastor, with about a minute left before our break, anything else you want to highlight before we get to our break about the great distinctions that are made here? Well, yeah. So I, I think we just want to say for our listeners, this righteousness of reason uh, for someone who understands the Apostles' Creed, right, in the third article of the Creed, which which Rome and the Reformers would have been confessing, right, the Creed, this would be absurd. We cannot, by our own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ our Lord or come to him, right? We can't accomplish that. The human will cannot produce mm. what the law requires. And so we need a righteousness that is uh, outside of ourselves, given to us by someone else because of someone else's work. And that's what the Lutheran reformers were so, you know, uh, what they knew they needed to confess and, and to teach for the sake of the Christian conscience. And what now, in our section of this article, we're going to point out Rome got wrong in so many ways. Well, good. We'll get to that on the other side of our break. We are studying Christ and justification from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, 
and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are studying what God's Word says concerning Christ, the two natures of Christ, and justification by faith in Christ for Christ's sake with Pastor Greg Truey of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colcamp, Missouri. Now, Pastor, I want to I want to break this down a little bit because what you're saying captures everything that we're looking at here, especially at the beginning of this article, the righteousness of reason. Um, this is something, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe you talk this way, like... I don't talk about this when I'm watching the Twins or watching a football game or something. Hey, what, what do you think about righteousness of reason? Can you break that down for us a little bit and, and just give us a little uh, um, a teaching on, okay, what is righteousness of reason? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's um, so righteousness, right? Innocence before God. So it's this idea that we can, we can achieve an innocence before the Lord or uh, to be in a right relationship with the Lord by by sort of devoting our human capacity, our will, our reason, our senses, to sort of figuring it out. If we, if we were able to just sort of do the logic, we'll be able to figure it out and, and, and know what is necessary to satisfy God, right? <sighs> the problem is our reason and our senses are tainted by our sin. Right? E- even in the new man, even in the man of faith who has been converted and regenerated, he does his good works through the weakness of his flesh. Eh. So the man who's not converted has no hope for accomplishing this unbelievable task. Now, that doesn't stop him from trying. And so this is why we have all the man-made religions of the world, because they're trying to accomplish this through their reason and their senses. And, you know, they do produce a measure of civil righteousness, that is righteousness in the world, that is common to these all re- these religions, right? And, and uh, we can see being demonstrated in the world, but is that, does that satisfy the throne of God? Does that allow us to stand before our creator with our heads held high and not concerned that, you know, we will fall short? Of course not. That only comes through Christ and his atoning sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose benefits are given to us freely for his sake. It's, and that, that is glorious. Thanks be to God. And I, I do challenge you, Pastor Truy, next time we go to a Cardinals baseball game, try to bring up righteousness of reason with someone who's sitting by you and see how see how that goes. What do you think? I, I think you and I are going to be sitting there together at the game, and I'll be able to talk about it. <laughs> We're looking forward to it. Let's yeah. continue. <laughs> Let's continue on on page 83. Um, and once again, there it is this so chock full of enriching realities of this gift that Christ has given to us. So I just 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 join with us here. This is such a joy. Uh, verse 12, or number 12. In this opinion, there are many great and deadly errors, which would be too boring to list. 
Let the careful reader think only about this. If this is Christian righteousness, what difference is there between philosophy and Christ's teaching? If we merit forgiveness of sins by these acts, of what benefit is Christ? If we can be justified by reason and the works of reason, what need is there of Christ or regeneration? 1 Peter 1. From these opinions, the matter has now reached the point that many ridicule us because we teach that a righteousness different from philosophic righteousness must be sought. We have heard that some preachers, after setting aside the gospel, have explained Aristotle's ethics instead of a sermon. Not that such men err if these things, those things the adversaries defend are true. For Aristotle wrote about civil morals in such a learned way that nothing further about the topic needs to be demanded. We see books published in the certain sayings of Christ are compared with the sayings of Socrates, Zeno, and others. It's as though Christ had come to deliver a certain certain laws through which we merit forgiveness of sins, as though we do not receive this freely because of his merits. Therefore, if we here accept the teachings of the adversaries, that by works of reason we merit forgiveness of sins and justification, there be no difference between righteousness of philosophers or certainly, certainly of Pharisees and of Christians. Yet the adversaries do not pass by Christ completely. They require a knowledge of his history of Christ. They credit him by writing that from his merit a way of life is given to us, or as they say, first grace. They understand that it is a habit inclining us toward God more readily. Yet what they credit to this habit is of little importance. For they imagine that the human will's acts are the same before and after this habit. They imagine that the will can love God, but nevertheless this habit stimulates it to love more cheerfully. They tell us first, merit this habit by your earlier merits. Then they tell us that we should merit an increase of this habit and life eternal by works of the law. In this way they bury Christ, so that people may not benefit from him as a mediator and believe they freely receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation for his sake. They let people dream that by their own fulfillment of the law they merit forgiveness of sins. But by their own fulfillment of the law, they are counted righteous before God. However, the law is never satisfied, since, hum- since reason does nothing except certain civil works. In the meantime, a person neither fears God nor truly believes that God cares. Although they speak about this habit, God's love cannot exist in a person without the righteousness of faith, nor can his love be understood. So, Pastor, it, it gets to this righteousness of reason and talks about mm-hmm. philosophy as well. Where do you want to continue? Well, let's let's start at paragraph twelve, maybe, right, and say, um, if uh, if Christian righteousness, or if if we merit forgiveness uh, of sins, right, through what we can figure out or by the good works that that we're able to accomplish, then then what need do we have of Christ? And what have we turned Christ into? Is he simply a new Moses? Is he just a taskmaster? Is he just an example so that we can see in Christ? Okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. And that just increases our burden because we'll never be able to accomplish it like Christ did. 
It also changes the entire purpose of the Bible, right? I, 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 so, you know, pastors have pet peeves, right? <laughs> um, the B-I-B-L-E, right? What is that? The acronym, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, right? Uh, I despise that acronym. Uh, no offense to our hearers, our listeners, but like, be, why, why? Because so often it turns the Bible into a rule book, right? Like, okay, give me the instructions, basic instructions, that's a law term, right, that I need to know in order to make sure I get it right before I leave earth, right? No, no, no. The whole point of the scripture is the justification of a sinner for the sake of Christ through faith in Christ. That's it. That's the whole entirety point of scripture, and that's the point of justification. So if we're meriting forgiveness, we've reduced Christ, we've we've changed the purpose for which he was sent by the Father, we turn him, we already had Moses, why do we need another one, right? And so let's, we start there, but then, oh, they say, yeah, but the, the opponents don't pass by Christ completely. They still want to sort of say something about Jesus, and so they just turn Jesus into, are you ready for this? They turn him into jumper cables. Hmm. Right? Like, we have this ability in ourselves, but we need him to sort of stir it up, but to get it, to get it going. We just, so to, he, he's a divine pep talk. He just, we need a jump start. But the battery's not completely dead. So, so that they even have a false anthropology. They have a false view of original sin. They don't actually think that the, the corruption of mankind was complete and total so that we cannot do anything to save ourselves or to merit God's favor. The dead don't raise themselves. And this is how the scriptures teach the human condition is after the fall. We are by nature corrupt. We are dead. We are hostile to God, his enemies, and we can't fix that ourselves no matter how much time we give to sort of figuring it out. We cannot merit God's favor. And so in this teaching, paragraph 18, they bury Christ. Mm. He's no longer the mediator that we have between God and man. Um, and, it, and it is unfortunate. It's sad. And the, the temptation that we have as human beings is just, well, you got to do something. And that's what this really comes down to. Like you said, that Jesus gives a pep talk. Well, we always know a pep talk. You know, we talk a lot about sports, Pastor Truly and I. And can you imagine a coach right before a game um, or the miracle, you know, back in, in Herb Brooks talking to the hockey team and saying, don't worry, boys. Everything's all accomplished. Let's go out there and have fun. Oh, <laughs> I mean, man. it just wasn't, you know, that's not how we do it, you know? So it's a natural inclination that we have that when you say, you know, you want to have a little godly language. So you say, um, uh, prima gratia, first grace. And you're like, oh, I like that. I like that. Habit. Yes, habit. Like I'm working out, I'm lifting the weights, I'm getting the strategy down. Yeah, that makes sense. So God's kind of my pep talker. Or my, like you said, uh, jumper cables. He's he's kind of that beginning, 
But like it says, and you just said so beautifully, you're never going to have a clear Christian conscience because you're always going to wonder if you've done enough. Uh, Pastor, I've heard this quote before. I've read it also in uh, Dr. Francis Pieper, who wrote Christian Dogmatics. Probably, I think it's over 100 years ago now. Um, mm-hmm. And he said there's two kind of religions in the world, do or done. You got to do more or it's already been done. Uh, any thoughts on, on uh, well, the sports analogy or what Pieper has to say? Well, well, yeah, right. So, like, I, I love the sports analogy, but why sports work is because they are institutions of the law Mm -hmm. right you you do not you do not win unless you've you've earned it right so so nobody let's do away with everybody gets a trophy no it doesn't work that way or the whole thing is pointless right why discipline my body why work hard why why uh, sweat and bleed and go through the physical a discipline that's necessary to improve in order to what's the word defeat my opponent right mm-hmm. this is this is an institution of the law where you achieve by your work but it's and so it breaks down if, if you try to bring grace into sports right it, it just doesn't work anymore there, there it, it makes no sense but now we don't need to compete when we're when we're hoping that we are, are uh, have reconciliation before God because Christ has done the fighting for us. Mm. He has accomplished it in our place. He is the one who shed his blood and he fought the fight. God be praised for that. But we, so, so therefore, we do not want to diminish that. His work is sufficient. Ours is always lacking. And so our righteousness must be on account of Christ alone. Well, let's continue on. There's a lot to cover here. We're in number 19 on page 84. As we continue, as Pastor says so well, the righteousness of reason or righteousness in any way besides Christ and him crucified will just always lead us to more law and more despair, really. Number 19. They make up a distinction between due merit and true complete merit. This is only a tactic, so that they do not appear to agree openly with the Pelagians. If God must give grace for due merit, it is no longer due merit, but is a true duty and complete merit. They do not know what they are saying. (laughs) After this habit of love is in a person, they imagine that such a person can gain merit in a wholly deserving way. They tell us to doubt whether there is a habit present. Therefore, how do they know whether they gain merit in merely agreeable way or wholly deserving way? This whole matter was made up by idle men. They did not know how forgiveness of sins happens and how by God's judgment and terrors of conscience, trust and works is driven out of us. Secure hypocrites always judge that they gain merit in wholly deserving way, whether the habit is present or not present, because people naturally trust in their own righteousness. But terrified consciences waver and hesitate. They seek and heap up other works in order to find peace. Such consciences never think that they gain merit in a wholly deserving way. And they rush into despair unless they hear, in addition to the teaching of the law, the gospel about free forgiveness of sins and righteousness of faith. So the adversaries teach nothing but righteousness of reason, 
or certainly about certainty about the law. They see the law just like Jewish people see Moses' veiled face. In self-secure hypocrites, who think that they fulfill the law, they stir up assumptions and empty confidence in works and cause them to have contempt for the grace of Christ. On the other hand, they also drive timid consciences to despair. The timid labor with doubt. They can never experience what faith is and how effective it is. How effective it is. So at last they completely despair. We think about righteousness of reason like this. God requires it. Because of God's commandment, the honorable works commanded by the Ten Commandments must be done according to Galatians 3. The law was our guardian. Likewise, 1 Timothy 1.9 says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. For God wants wild sinners to be restrained by civil discipline. To maintain discipline, he has given laws, letters, doctrine, rulers, and penalties. To a certain extent, reason can, by its own strength, perform civil righteousness. Yet it is often overcome by natural weakness and by the devil pushing it to obvious crimes. We cheerfully credit the righteousness of reason with the praise that is due. That is, corrupt nature has no greater good. Aristotle rightly says, Neither the evening star nor the morning star is more beautiful than righteousness. And God also honors it with bodily rewards. However, it is out, ought not to be praised by dishonoring Christ. So it is, our, is false that we merit forgiveness of sins by our works. It is false that people are counted righteous before God because of their righteousness of reason. It is false that reason by its own strength is able to love God above all things and to fulfill God's law. In other words, reason cannot truly fear God, be truly confident that God hears our prayer, be willing to obey God in death and other divine matters, not covet what belongs to others, and so on. Yet reason can do civil works. So they're making important distinctions here of, of reason, but also that you know there's a difference of civil uh, versus I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord. Um, why are those distinctions important, and how would you break down these uh, paragraphs? Well, they're important because either we have... Uh, comfort for the conscience or or we don't <laughs> and and so either um, it's all accomplished by Christ and given to us freely or we're doing something or we've never done enough and that's the problem so they they start right and, and this helps us understand what was earlier meant by philosophy how they're engaging in philosophy they make up this um, not these non-biblical categories right, of due merit and true merit, right, the congruent merit and the condign merit. So you have this merit that is started in you by Christ, where he's just a jump, jumper cable work that gets you going and motivates you, but you could really, you had it in yourself, you just needed a bit of, um, you know, inspiration, I guess. But then you also, they talk about this true merit, which you earn completely by by satisfying the will of God, by doing good good works. And that's their system. That's the righteousness of reason or the righteousness of works that they're teaching. And this article then says, okay, well, if that's what you're going to teach, you're going to end up either in one of two situations. Either you're going, going to produce troubled consciences 
who are always afraid, who are looking to find comfort in their works because they're supposed to be able to achieve this, but they find that their works are never sufficient, and so they despair. They know they fall short of the glory of God, but they've been told that they're able to do this. And so that's the first scenario, the troubled conscience. The other scenario, paragraph 21 and following, is that you end up with secure hypocrites. Mm. They've been told they're able to accomplish this through their reason, through their senses. And so they actually begin to believe that they have, that they've gained the merit of God, that they deserve his, his, uh, his love. They have an empty confidence and also then a contempt for grace. And so when someone whose sins they see uh, receives God's undeserved love, they despise it because, hey, what did they do to earn that? Look what I've done, right? And so Jesus will preach parables about this, right? Mm -hmm. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector is confessing his sin. He goes home justified by the grace of God, where the one who thought, hey, look at me, I'm not a sinner. I'm so happy that I've been able to keep this law and do all of these works that you should be so impressed with. He goes home damned. He has an empty confidence. He's a secure hypocrite. And these are the two situations that this righteousness of reason results in, either a troubled conscience or a secure hypocrite. And neither one is the righteousness of faith. It is very, uh, and this will be very important for you, our listeners, as we go through justification, is there's going to be a lot of repeating. Now, it does dig a little deeper into what the adversaries were saying and the clear and concise teachings that are uh, laid out in Scripture and what they lay out at that time and also laid out for us today. So just be very patient as we look at this. It's going to feel like we're in a repeating, <laughs> a repeating notion throughout, but it comes down to this. If you often will talk to somebody towards, let's just say they were diagnosed with cancer or, or they were near the end of their life, is that often you not only will hear that individual say this, but you hear other people say it. They will go down the laundry list of things that they've done. And if you were to ask them very upfront, why will you be with the Lord? They will use language like, well, I hope so. Um, I've done this. I've tried to be a good person. And that's exactly the same kind of mentality they are addressing right here. We naturally go there. And here they are trying to say, no, 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 no. Lean on the grace of Christ and all he's done for you. This is where the rubber hits the road for us as Christians. That we are able to say nothing more, nothing less, that only by Jesus' blood and righteousness. So uh, let's keep moving forward here, Pastor. We have uh, about, well, we're starting here in 28. We'll go through 39 and wrap up our time. Number 28 on page 86 of the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord. The following is also false and dishonoring to Christ. People do not sin who without grace do God's commandments. We have testimonies in favor of our belief, not only from scriptures, but also from the fathers. For in opposition to the Pelagians, Augustine argues at great length that grace is not given because of our merits. And on the nature and grace, he says, if natural ability through the free will is enough for learning how one ought to live and for living aright, then Christ died in vain. 
then the offense of the cross is made void. Why may I not also cry out about this? Yes, I will cry out. And with Christian grief, I will rebuke them. You are served, severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. John 8.36 says, the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Therefore, by reason, we cannot be freed from our sins and merit forgiveness. John 3.5 Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But if it is necessary to be born again of the Holy Spirit, the righteousness of reason does not justify us before God and does not fulfill the law. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They totally lack the wisdom and righteousness of God which acknowledges and glorifies God. Likewise, Romans 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it is not to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These testimonies are also so clear that use Augustine's words in this case. They do not need a keen understanding, but only an attentive hearer. If the carnal mind is hostile against God, the flesh certainly does not love God. If it cannot be subjected to God's law, it cannot love God. If the carnal mind is hostile against God, the flesh sins, even when we do outward civil works. If it cannot be subjected to God's law, it certainly sins, even when it has deeds that are excellent and praiseworthy according to human judgment. The adversaries consider only the teaching of the second table, which contains civil righteousness that reason understands. Con content with this, they think content with this, that they are fulfilled God's law. In the meantime, they do not see the first table, which commands that we love God, that we declare God is that we declare God is certainly angry with sin, that we truly fear God, and that we declare God certainly hears our prayers. But the human heart without the Holy Spirit either feels secure and despises God's judgment, or in punishment flees from God and hates him and when he judges. Therefore, it does not obey the first table. So contempt for God, doubt about God's word, and doubt about the threats and promises dwell in human nature. People truly sin even when, without the Holy Spirit, they do virtuous works. This is because they acted with a wicked heart, from Romans 14. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. For such people do their works with contempt for God, just as Epicurus does not believe that God cares for him or that he is regarded or heard by God. This contempt ruins works and seems virtuous because God judges the heart. Lastly, it is very foolish for the adversaries to write that people who are under eternal wrath merit forgiveness of sins by an act of love, which springs from their mind. For it is impossible to love God unless forgiveness of sins is received first by faith. The heart, truly feeling that God is angry, cannot love God unless he has shown he has been reconciled. As long as he is terrifies us and seems to cast us into eternal death, Human nature is not able to take courage. It cannot love a wrathful judging and punishing God. It is easy for idle men to invent such dreams about love, such as a personal person guilty of mortal sin can love God above all things, because they do not feel that God's wrath or judgment is, but in agony the conscience and the conflicts with Satan's con Satan, conscience experiences the emptiness of this philosophical speculations. Paul says in Romans 4.15, The law brings wrath. He does not say that by the law people merit forgiveness, for the law always accuses and terrifies his consciences. 
Therefore, it does not justify because conscience terrified by law runs from God's judgment. They err who assume that they, by the law, by their own works, they merit forgiveness of sins. It is enough for us to have said these things about the righteousness or reason of the law which the adversaries teach. Later, we will declare our belief about the righteousness of faith. The subject itself will drive us to present more testimonies. Present more testimonies. These also will be of service in overthrowing the adversaries' errors that we have reviewed so far. Pastor, we have about two, two minutes left in our time. A lot was said, but boil it down for us as we close out our time. Yeah, yeah. So the final error that is being discussed here is this idea that people um, are able to satisfy God without grace because they're doing works that are good. This maybe, I, don't, I forget the term, right? But, but uh, the Roman Catholic idea that there might be people who, who sort of get to heaven who'd never believed in Jesus, but because they did so much good, Right, the mm-hmm. ignorant brother, or something like that. Oh, what a, what a what a sham! Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's so disappointing. And so then this beautiful section, where where the article points out the fact that the sinful man must be regenerate. Right, that the Son will set you free. That the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ will call you and make you new and give you life. So John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Not reason, not the human will, but the work of God in Christ. John 3, 5, unless you are born again, right? The dead doesn't raise itself, but we must be made alive by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, right? We are alive in Christ and believe the promise, right? And what's given in the promise, the promise itself has the power to make us alive. And that then is the justification of faith that the article will spend many more paragraphs unpacking further. (laughs) Very good. Pastor Greg Truly of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colcamp, Missouri clearly confessing the truth of Christ and justification from the apology of the Augsburg Confession. Pastor Truly, thank you again for being our guest. My pleasure. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finneran. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.